Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, November the 22nd, 2022. A lot of two twos there. Uh, we've done a lot of shows, as regular viewers and listeners of the show know on the changing dynamics, the changing landscape of the left and the right, the political left and right, conservatives, liberals, radicals, progressives, whatever you want to call them, fascists, reactionaries, all sorts of words we use to describe left and right in not just American, but most politics. Um, but one of the, the, the wrenches that one throws into all this when it comes to American politics is the role of libertarianism. There are, of course, libertarians both on the left and the right. And all too often, I think, when it comes to making sense of the left and the right and radicals and conservatives in American politics, we forget to add the complexity, the wrinkle uh, of libertarianism. We're addressing libertarianism today straight on with my guest, Andrew Koppelman. He's a longtime law professor at Northwestern University in Chicago and the author of a really interesting new book, Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed. Uh, Andrew is joining us from his office uh, at Northwestern. Andrew, before we get started um, on the book, you're a law professor, so you're good at definitions. Tell us what we should think libertarianism is because of course it means different things to different people uh so uh, you just had the wikipedia entry up there on uh the screen and yeah, we rely on wikipedia andrew for better or worse on this show there's a great piece of wisdom in uh the wikipedia uh entry at the very beginning it says not to be confused with liberalism that's important libertarianism is the claim that we will be freer, we will have more control over the course of our own lives if we radically constrain and cripple the state. But the smaller the state is, the freer we are. That's what distinguishes libertarianism from liberalism. So to the extent that the definition says it takes liberty as a core value, that's true of liberalism generally. What distinguishes libertarianism from the liberalism associated with, I don't know, Joe Biden and the Democrats, is that they're also in favor of freedom. They just think that a bigger, stronger state is more likely to produce actually free citizens than a small one. I think you're doing credit to Joe Biden calling him a liberal. I'm not sure he's anything, but that's another question. I want to talk about Biden today. Um, surely we need to broaden that definition. It's not just a reaction to Biden-style liberalism, but more to classic 19th century liberalism. And would it be fair to say that libertarians are just radical liberals then, at one end of the, the scale of liberalism? And who in particular in the foundations of the movement were libertarians reacting against? Well, the uh, modern libertarian movement, which I talk about in the book, really begins during the New Deal period, and it is a reaction against Franklin Roosevelt. And uh, more generally, 
welfare state capitalism. It is arguing against the large regulatory and redistributive apparatus that came into being in the depression. Uh, it, uh, so that's where I think it really begins. But it's international, isn't it? Um, uh, it began in many ways, or, or some people at least believe it began with the, the so-called Mont Pelerin Society in Switzerland, perhaps the best known yep. figure within libertarianism is, is Friedrich von Hayek. And it wasn't just reacting against FDR, it was reacting against both Bolshevism and fascism in Europe. And more precisely, Hayek, who I talk about at the beginning of the book, I think that he is the founder of the libertarian movement, is reacting against the program of the British Labour Party in the 30s and 40s. They are not communists, they're not Leninists, they don't want the dictatorship of the proletariat, but they do want central economic planning. They want government control of the means of production. They want a nationalized large industry. And they think that central economic planning is the way to go. And they have some basis for this. They're not alone. You, you go back to the 1930s. In the late 1930s, the world's most admired economic managers are Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler, because those are the two leaders who have turned their country's economies around during the Depression, while Britain and France and the United States are still in an economic slump. And so lots of people think in the 1930s, well, we don't like the dictators, we don't like their methods, but central economic planning is the way to go. And Hayek writes The Road to Serfdom in 1944 as a protest against that. And Hayek argues that central economic planning of the kind the Labour Party is considering is necessarily going to be wasteful and tyrannical. At the time, Hayek is a professor at the London School of Economics. And uh, the book is uh, directed at the program of that party. Now, it doesn't really fit against Roosevelt because Roosevelt never proposes central economic planning. Uh, after a bit of experimentation early in the New Deal, he basically is a welfare state capitalist. But uh, there was in the United States. Let, let me jump in, Andrew. You've thrown out that term. It's a fascinating one. Welfare state capitalist. What do you mean by that? Uh, the basic idea is that we've got a free market economy. There's no central ownership of the means of production. There's no central economic planning. The economy is decentralized. It allows for whatever aggregations of wealth are produced by a free market. But there is a large regulatory apparatus to deal with various kinds of market failures, external effects from individual transactions that the market can't uh, take care of. And there's a redistributive apparatus. So the people who lose out in the market, who don't have things to sell, skills to sell that are able to produce a decent wage for them, get some kind of supplementation so that everybody has a social safety net. Those are the two big elements of welfare state capitalism, regulation and redistribution. Andrew, the way you're presenting it, it sounds to me like a family argument. Obviously, family family mm -hmm. arguments can be particularly nasty, vitriolic. Yeah. But a debate within liberalism about the future, if you like, of the liberal state or the absence of the liberal state. Um, I do brought so. up Hayek a couple of times. Of course, the other character who we might throw in here is Keynes, the great British mm -hmm. economist, 
whose ideas were turned into Keynesianism. I'm not sure if Keynes was ever really a Keynesianist. But um, would it be fair to say that Keynes represented the traditional liberal conception of the state and economic freedom in the 20th century, whereas Hayek went further in terms of his defense of individual liberty? Well, at least the Hayek of Road to Serfdom, there's not really an opposition. In fact, Keynes read Road to Serfdom and he sent Hayek a letter, which we have, saying, uh, this is great. I agree with this. Uh, the only thing that uh, my only quarrel with it, says Keynes, is that you haven't really said where to draw the line, what the limits are of state power. Because in principle, Hayek, at least the Hayek of the road to serfdom, doesn't exclude regulation and redistribution. Hayek thinks that there is a legitimate place for those things because markets do sometimes fail. Sometimes there are public goods that markets won't supply. Sometimes there are public baths like pollution that people won't control unless the state makes them control it. And Hayek emphasizes the distributions that markets produce aren't necessarily fair because they're forward-looking. They don't reward virtue. They pay people for what they produce now that is that other people value enough to pay a lot for. So the subtitle of your book, Andrew, is um, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed. That suggests that the foundations of liberal philosophy weren't necessarily bad. So you're not so much a critic of Hayek, and Popper and the other founders of libertarianism, but rather the second generation. Is that fair? Uh, that is fair. Uh, in fact, uh, part of what I'm trying to do in the book is recover Hayek for people on the left, because there really isn't anything that Hayek says in The Road to Serfdom that would be rejected by Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They are all welfare state capitalists. And then what about Schumpeter here, perhaps the most influential of all economists in this period? How does he fit in? Was he a libertarian? He was hostile to the state, but he's never really attached to the formal libertarian movement. Yeah, it, uh, Schumpeter uh, has not been particularly influential in the libertarian movement. And uh, I think that it would take us somewhat far afield to uh, get into just how he fits. Uh, Schumpeter, I think all I'll say is that Schumpeter is a complicated case. And since what I'm trying to do in the book is trace the most important libertarian and influential thinkers in the movement, Schumpeter isn't really part of the movement. The and it sounds to me a little bit like the, 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 the history. The, the his, sorry, go on. I just want to say one thing about uh, Schumpeter, which I think reinforces Hayek's claim that markets don't give people what they deserve. What Schumpeter is most famous for claiming is that markets generate creative destruction. People can invest for years in a skill and then the market changes, the market generates new technologies and suddenly your skill is worthless. You can be uh, the best wheelwright in the world, but once we figure out how to manufacture wheels, your skill is useless. And that's immediately pertinent to some of the issues in contemporary American politics, because there are all sorts of factory workers who were very good at the manufacturing skills that they had before automation came in. And now you've got an enormous population of people who can't count on the incomes that their fathers had 
because because technological progress, which markets encourage, has made their skills worthless. And that's a problem that political economy has to deal with. Schumpeter it's, it's a problem, but it's also a reality and one that in some ways, I guess some libertarians, particularly like Elon Musk, would embrace. It sounds to me in, in your narrative, it, it's rather like a lot of these rather esoteric European ideas. They, they, they become rather odd when they make the transatlantic voyage from, uh, from east to west. Uh, it's rather like the history of postmodernism. So your, your book and your critique isn't so much of the libertarian ideas, but of their history as they came to America. Who were the principal exporters of European libertarianism to the United States? Who brought, um, who brought Hayek over? Um, well, Hayek himself brought Hayek over. Uh, the, uh, some uh, people at the University of Chicago persuaded the University of Chicago Press to publish his book, Road to Serfdom, which had previously been published in England in a small print run. And unexpectedly, it became a bestseller because opponents of the New Deal glommed onto it and said, aha, someone is finally articulating what we're trying to say. Now, the book isn't really aimed at the New Deal, but it's really aimed at the British Labor Party, which is very different, but it becomes a huge hit in the United States, and it has continued to have a large following in the United States. A few years ago, Glenn Beck promoted it uh, and put it onto the Amazon bestseller list, many decades after it was first published. Uh, so that's when it first comes over, and there are other uh, libertarian writers, I think, really taking off in the 1970s who are influenced by those European ideas. The other person who is enormously important here is Ayn Rand, who uh, in her book, Atlas Shrugged, written in the 1950s, makes a powerful emotional case for leaving markets unregulated. I want to come back to the, Rep the Republican Party in a minute, Andrew, but I want to address one issue that you brought up that yeah. doesn't make complete sense to me. This sharp contrast you make between the British Labour Party and FDR's New Deal. Mm -hmm. The British Labour Party were divided. They were quote unquote socialists, but they weren't necessarily opposed to capitalism. They weren't Stalinist. So the difference between the British Labour Party agenda in the 30s and FDR's New Deal wasn't that radical, was it? Well, the British Labour Party's platform uh, was uh, certainly uh, by World War II was the centralized economic planning that we have now undertaken in wartime has got to be continued after the war. We cannot allow large industry to be privately controlled again. We've got to have some central direction to make sure that our economic resources are devoted to benefit everybody, not just the rich. And so they really are proposing central economic planning of a kind that Roosevelt never proposed. Roosevelt never proposed to take over the steel business and the auto business and the coal business and nationalize them all. It just was never a proposal on the table. Okay, well, that's it's, it's a really interesting um, issue. So would it be fair to say, Andrew, that the, the history of American uh, libertarianism and the history of the American Republican Party begin to converge that this is the political party that 
that uh, that libertarianism is is most successful. What about the hard right within the Republican Party um, in the fifties and sixties? Did they embrace libertarianism? Did they even use this word? Mm-hmm. Well. They certainly embraced anti-communism and any state action that they didn't like, they associated with communism. So the proposal, for example, to pass a civil rights bill uh, was opposed as communist and libertarian rhetoric was used and it persuaded some people when, for example, I probably most significantly for subsequent history, Barry Goldwater, after he had the Republican nomination in 1964, voted against the Civil Rights Act on libertarian grounds. He thought that it was interfering with private freedom of contract. And while Goldwater himself opposed racism, he thought that the state had no right to interfere with private contracts. So for you, uh, Goldwater represented a purer form of libertarianism. He wasn't corrupted by delusion and greed. Uh, Well, I would say delusion, the idea that you can have equal rights for black people while leaving the practices of racial segregation exactly where they are, that is a delusion. And part of what I want to argue in the book is that libertarianism in its minimal state form post Hayek is a bad political philosophy. It is not in fact going to make people freer. A person is not freer if they are traveling cross country and they cannot find any motel where they can sleep, which was the situation of lots of Americans, black Americans before the Civil Rights Act. Yeah, obviously that, that, that that's a given, but uh, in terms of the history of libertarianism, this, was some, this wasn't something that Hayek or, or any of the other people at the uh, Mont Pelerin Society could or should have addressed, was it? Uh, Well, Hayek did not say very much about racism, Uh, but there were other libertarians who opposed the Civil Rights Act on the same ground. Ayn Rand opposed it on that ground. Uh, Robert Bork opposed it on that ground. Uh, Murray Rothbard, uh, probably the most significant political philosopher you never heard of, who is uh, one of the founders of the modern Libertarian Party, opposed it on that same ground. There is also, Andrew, a left libertarianism Mm-hmm. isn't there which yeah. comes close to a kind of am- anarchism i mean i guess you could argue emma goldman in her own way was a libertarian mm-hmm. in her hostility towards the state what's the history of left libertarianism uh from the end of the war through the 1970s or 80s did it did you trace this in your book is this part of how uh, the libertarian philosophy was corrupted by delusion or greed, or is this another story entirely? It really is an entirely another story. The one libertarian anarchist who I talk about in detail is Rothbard. Uh, but uh, And Rothbard was aiming at the left as well as the right. Rothbard published in Ramparts magazine, which was a leading publication of the left. So he was hoping to attract people on the left as well as the right. And part of the attraction of libertarianism, part of the reason why the ideas took off in the 1970s was draft resistance. Uh, The idea of a principled opposition to the military draft was attractive to an awful lot of people who thought that the Vietnam War was crazy and wanted to resist the draft. 
but from the left and the right, the growth of the state, particularly the American state, what Eisenhower called the military industrial complex, was quite dramatic in the period between um, 1945 and the end of the 60s, wasn't it? Absolutely. Uh, and in association taxation. So, so when, in your view, do things go wrong? How, who, who are the, the real corruptors of a creed that, for you, is in some ways credible? I, I don't suppose you, you, you... How would you define yourself? Are you a libertarian, a left libertarian, uh, or, or more of a classic I'm liberal? liberal. I, I am a welfare state liberal. I think that uh, you know, capitalism has been great, that uh, has diminished the number of people on the planet who live in poverty to the point where, you know, just a few decades ago, more than a third of the human race was in desperate, less than $2 a day poverty. And now it's less than 10% and most of them live in failed states. So, which is arguably one of the greatest things that ever happened in history and capitalism is the reason. But at the same time, you know, there are, Everyone needs to have a reason to support the regime that we have. The regime should be making everybody better off. One of part of the dysfunction of the US economy in the last few decades is that the country has gotten enormously richer, but the wealth has all pooled at the top. That uh, the wealth hasn't been generally shared. Some people are worse off, poorer, less stable, uh, just have a less reliable income than their fathers did. And there's no excuse for that. And the only way that you can fix that is by having a redistributive state. The market isn't going to fix that. So, so when, when you call yourself, I'm just curious, coming back to this distinction you made between FDR and the British Labour Party, when you call yourself a welfare state liberal, does that make you an FDR new dealer or does that make you a follower of the Webb's Labour Party? Um, well, the uh, webs are basically socialists. Uh, they so you're not a socialist. You can I'm not a socialist. Absolutely not. So um, a welfare state liberal is not a socialist. No. Anyway, so so that it's it's all very interesting, Andrew. Let's get on to the corruption where it okay. fell. A good Christian narrative. Mm -hmm. Everything was good, and then something went wrong. What was it? Was it the Koch brothers? Was it Newt Gingrich? Was it Ronald Reagan? Well, uh, Charles Koch is the one who I talk about most in the book. He, more than his uh, younger brother, David, was the big political organizer here. And he's been an idealist supporter of libertarian causes since the 1960s. And one of the reasons why libertarian ideas are so widely disseminated and why they're so influential in the Republican Party is because Koch has spent millions and millions of dollars promoting these ideas. Uh, to the point where the Libertarian Party, I'm sorry, where the Republican Party, there isn't a whole lot that they now agree on, but they are absolutely in favor of tax cuts and shrinking the size of the state. That's something that they can get together on. It's really the only accomplishment of the Trump administration was cutting taxes and crippling some but, but trump was anything but a libertarian i mean you can call trump all sorts of things but he was certainly not a libertarian was he no but the libertarians had enough influence in the party that at the level of actual policy which is something that trump could never be bothered with because i just never cared about details the actual policy of the republicans delivered was libertarian it shrunk the size of the state it 
cut taxes, it crippled administrative capacity. That's what they actually delivered. And they came close to taking health insurance away from 20 million people in order to have further tax cuts. That's the actual record on the ground. But I mean, Trump himself, Trump doesn't stand for anything. <laughs> you know, there's no- Yeah, and uh, let, let's leave Trump out of it because he only adds to the confusion here. Um, Andrew, how does somebody like Coke differ from the, the classic 1930 Republican free market opponents of FDR? What is it about Coke that makes him one of these bad libertarians? Is he, is he just delusional and greedy? And he, but, but, but these people were always delusional and greedy. What, what distinguishes him from his capitalist, big, 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 big capitalist forebearers, the, the men who own the railroads and the banks and the pharmaceutical companies and the media companies? Uh, well, I think that the uh, 19th century free market people did understand that there were national problems that needed to be addressed, that uh, you know, the railroad companies, which were some of the biggest industries in the late 19th century, didn't complain about the federal government playing a role in pl planning the National Transatlantic Railroad. They thought that uh, common problems were a legitimate thing for the government to solve. Whereas I mean, Charles Koch's most important intervention in American politics was to promote climate change denial. So that one of the big, really arguably the biggest problem that the country has faced in the last several decades, it's been crippled in dealing with because the Republican party has, is absolutely opposed to doing anything about it. And Koch was able to, you know, quite carefully and uh, skillfully use campaign money in order to punish any Republicans who were willing to entertain the possibility that climate was a problem that anything needed to be done about. So uh, is he just deluded or corrupt? Because libertarians are, by definition, they're not against science. And the scientific consensus is there's a, a huge problem with the environment. And people who reject that tend to be anti-science too. But there's nothing necessarily anti-scientific about the libertarian movement unless i guess the, the scientific consensus puts out a message that the coke doesn't actually like or believe well i think there's been a lot of motivated reasoning among the libertarians about this problem if in fact there are large national problems that the market can't solve that suggests that small state libertarianism is a mistake. And so people who are devoted to small state libertarianism tend to be in denial about problems like this. And so you saw paper after paper coming out of the Cato Institute questioning the science. Uh, and I think it was because these people really didn't want to believe it. Charles Koch, it's very hard for me to get into his heart. He was a very strong, committed doctrinaire libertarianism as libertarian as early as the 1960s. On the other hand, all of his wealth comes from fossil fuels. And so there is a certain amount of motivation there as well. So do you think, the, using the example of Koch, is he a, a legitimate libertarian or is he simply shielding behind the cloak of libertarianism to protect his own interests? So for example, when it comes to the climate, if indeed um, much of his wealth is bound up with traditional fossil fuels, he can reject that as an excuse to protect his own interests, but that doesn't make him a very good libertarian. It simply makes him a political opportunist. 
Well, this is one of the arguments that I make in the book, that from the standpoint of libertarianism, going back to Hayek, who is a man who Koch knew and supported, uh, Hayek would say, to the extent that there are problems like pollution that the market won't solve because the seller of fossil fuels is not going to internalize the costs of those fossil fuels, government has got to step in. And Koch has repeated that in some of his writings, but he has not been willing to apply it to this particular problem. Once again, I can't get into his heart. I can say that an awful lot of deployment of libertarian rhetoric has come from business people who would, unlike most business people who are ethical, business people who would like to be able to hurt other people without being bothered by the police. That's the corruption. What about this convergence of libertarianism and evangelical fundamentalism? We've done many shows about the increasingly central role of the evangelical movement in, in the conservative uh, American political cultural thought. Have the libertarians been taken over by the church? Is that one of the other reasons why... Um, uh, Hayek's original credible libertarian philosophy has been corrupted by delusion and greed? I don't talk about that much in the book. Uh, there has been a tendency, well, first of all, you know, in the United States, we've got a two-party system. And in a two-party system, very different interests are going to join together because they have to, because you've got to put together a majority in order to get anything done in American politics. And so there has always been this sometimes uneasy coalition between conservative Christians and libertarians. And motivated reasoning happens so that you get different ideas that clump together so that an American who is always in favor of tax cuts is likely to be opposed to abortion. Two issues that have nothing to do with one another. But those tend to be the beliefs of one or another tribe. Now, some of the conservative Christians, I think, do a job on their own Christian beliefs such that it is morally acceptable, indeed required to do what Trump tried to do, which is take health insurance away from 20 million people in order to have more tax cuts. I think as a reader of Christianity, a sympathetic reader of Christianity, this is a strange distortion of Christianity. But uh, the theologians are going to have to sort that out. But that's how I explain this a really weird coalition between the Christians and the libertarians. You mentioned Goldwater as perhaps the first major political figure to run on a, 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 a radical libertarian platform. Was the election of Reagan significant in the history of American libertarianism? Is this when it really came to power? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Reagan was in favor of free trade. He was against regulation. Uh, he was a fan of Hayek. He uh, met Hayek. He was also, though, he's a fan of FDR. So he was always trying yeah. to sort of liberate himself of his New Deal thinking. He wasn't that simple, was he? Well, I think that he liked Roosevelt's political style and tried to emulate it. But he thought that the New Deal had gone too far. Uh, he, there were some issues about which he changed his mind. He was very strongly against Medicare when it was first introduced. 
he did not try to attack it once he became president because he understood that that was politically impossible. But he was generally against uh, the uh, large regulatory state. On the other hand, Reagan was not insensitive to evidence and the administration was not insensitive to evidence. So one example, uh, when Reagan came in, the Carter administration had just promulgated a regulation limiting lead in gasoline because it was thought that to get lead in gasoline put lead in the atmosphere, which damaged the brains of children. And the Reagan people came in extremely skeptical of this regulation and interested in cutting back on it. And then once they got in, they studied the science and they ended up imposing even more strict limits on lead than Carter had because they looked at the evidence and they saw that this stuff was in fact damaging children's brains and kidneys and they put a stop to it. So their libertarianism wasn't dogmatic. They thought that state intervention needed to be justified, but depending on the science, they thought that the justification could be forthcoming. And one of the legacies of Reagan ever since Reagan uh, government regulations have been required to be cost justified, to be put through cost benefit analysis. And that's continued through democratic administrations as well. Through Carter and through Obama and through Biden, it continues to be the procedure today. But isn't the point of libertarianism that you're against the state and the power of the state and the economic role of the state, cultural role of the state? Yep. I mean, Reagan invested massively in the military. Uh, Trump did as well. Does that make them credible libertarians? I mean, you're you're painting Trump as a libertarian because you don't like his policy on health. I don't like it either, but it doesn't make him a libertarian. It just makes him an unpleasant fellow. Yeah, but again, I'm talking that I want to draw a distinction between Trump's own ideology, which doesn't exist, and the actual practices of the Trump administration. But he ran up the debt, he invested massively in the military. So, but, but Leslie, I, I apologize for throwing Trump in because he only adds to the confusion. What about Gingrich? Was he, um, in your view, Andrew, uh, a sort of a, a corruption of Reagan? Is, was, 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 was the, um, the, the corruption and delusion within the Republican Party of, of, of libertarianism, did that reach a kind of climax with Gingrich? We've done a number of shows on the role of Gingrich. There are, I mean, it's so complicated when we get to specific politicians, particularly politicians in the legislature, because quite a lot of what they do is tactical and it is just to win an advantage on over the other side. Uh, so the opposition to Clinton's healthcare plan for example, which uh, that was a fight that Gingrich won, uh, was in part based on the belief that uh, this is just more big government and we don't want that. But it was also just tactical. He thought that if Clinton's health care plan would fail, that the Republicans would be able to win the next congressional election, which is in fact what happened. So with any con specific politician, all of these tactical considerations come into play. Where are we, uh, Andrew? I know you've got to run in a minute. Where are we uh, in November 2022 in terms of the history of American libertarianism? Who do you think is its major flag bearer? Um, 
Well, I think at this point, it is just in the water. It is an idea that is out there that is held by lots of people that uh, politicians can opportunistically reach for as a basis for doing what they are otherwise inclined to do. Probably Senator Rand Paul is the one who right. uh, closest to proposing it, but I don't want to isolate it with him. It is out there in the culture. What I was trying to do in my book is respond to the fact that it's out there in the culture because there wasn't any book on libertarianism that tried to be an anecdote, that tried to be an antidote to it. All of the books that were out there were written by fans. And I thought we really need a critical account of where it came from and what's wrong with it. So to end, Andrew, make the argument against libertarianism. Why is it uh, an idea that simply doesn't bear any real real uh, relevance to our current reality? Why is it out of date, inappropriate, wrong? Because if we are actually going to be free, then everyone has to have a sufficiency to live a free life. They have to have decent food, decent housing, decent medical care, and an unregulated market isn't going to supply those things. A free market wasn't going to give you a COVID vaccine. It took a massive government program to bring that about. And a free market isn't going to deal with external effects of markets such as pollution or climate change. The market can't solve that. The only way in which climate change can be addressed is by big government.